Shalom and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Tzvarim. My name is Menachem Niktag. Today is our second shiur on Parshat Re'eh, out of six. We will be studying from chapter 12, verse 6 until verse 29. We continue the study of the topic of HaMakom HaShir Yivchar Hashem, the central place of worship that Amisro needs to establish once they enter the land. We will talk about today what is supposed to be brought to that place and when is that place supposed to be constructed. Recall from our study yesterday that upon entering the land, there was a commandment to wipe out all the places of idol worship and instead establish one central place where Hashem would be worshipped, better known as Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem, the Shaken Shmosham, the place that God will choose for His name and reputation to dwell. Now we're going to get a list of all the different items that must be brought to this one central place. But before we read verse 6, which will begin that list, we need to give a general explanation of the different type of sacrifices that are brought to the temple. In regard to animal sacrifices, there's what's called an olah, a burnt offering, and a shlamim, which is called a peace offering. The burnt offering, as its name implies, the entire animal, after cut into parts, is sacrificed on the altar, and therefore all of its meat is given to God. In contrast to that, the shlamim, or the peace offering, only its blood is sprinkled, and certain fat parts that surround the abdominal cavity are offered on the altar, but 90% of the meat can be eaten. Most of the meat is eaten by the owners. Some of the meat is given as a present to the priest who offered that sacrifice. Now, the word for this offering again in Hebrew is vachim. In Hebrew, any time we kill an animal and eat its meat, it's called a zevach. And when this animal is sacrificed to God, then it's called a zevach lashem. So a regular cookout would be called a zevach, and a cookout where part of the animal is given to God and the blood is sprinkled on the altar is called a zevach lashem, or a korban shlamin. But there are different categories of shlamin. Sometimes you can give them whenever you would like. That is called a voluntary offering, or a nedava. And sometimes we're obligated to bring them. That's called a chovah. For example, when someone is saved from a life-threatening situation, if he was deathly ill, or had a very dangerous journey, he brings what's called a korban toda, a thanksgiving offering. And that, according to many opinions, is considered an obligation. There's also an obligation to bring sacrifices on the holidays, on the Shalosh Regalim, on the pilgrimage holidays. On those days, we bring both an olah, a burnt offering, and a shlamin, and a peace offering. So that's one category of animals that is brought to the temple. Maser is something else that's brought not only to the temple, but to the city of Yerushalayim. We will see later on in Parshat Re that 10% of our produce must be separated and it can only be eaten in Yerushalayim or it can be redeemed for its money value and that money can be brought to Yerushalayim and spent on food to eat within Yerushalayim. Then there's general contributions that can be made to God. That could be gold or silver or animals, whatever it may be. And something that can be a sacrifice is a sacrifice. Otherwise, its financial value is given to the temple. Also, we bring our firstborn animals to the temple. We also give 10% of our livestock. One out of every 10 of that new cattle must be brought to God as well. And finally, there's another commandment to bring our first fruits to Yerushalayim, called the Bikurim. So with this in mind, let's read verse 6, Pasuk Vav. shama And you shall bring there, to this one central place of worship, your burnt offerings, your olah, and your sacrifices, your zvachim, Rashi claims 
that these are zivchei chova, these are obligatory sacrifices, in contrast to nedarim and davot, voluntary sacrifices that will be later in this verse. Vet masrotechen, and also your maser, the tithing of the 10%, that in the simple meaning must be referring to the 10% that is brought to Yerushalayim and eaten by its owners in Yerushalayim, that will be described in detail in chapter 14. Vet trumatyetchem, and your contributions, and here we find a major argument among the commentators what that is referring to. Rashi claims this is referring to the first fruits that you bring, which can be referred to as something brought over by your hand, because when you present these first fruits to the Kohen, to the priest, he takes them from your hand. As we will see later on in chapter 26, The priest takes the fruit basket from your hand. Ramban claims they may be talking about the tithing, the truma that goes to the priest, which is referred to specifically as truma, even though that is usually given at home to your local priest, there are sometimes when there is no priest in your community and you still have to separate it, therefore you bring it with you when you go to Yerushalayim anyhow, and then you find a coin in Yerushalayim who you can give your truma to. Ramban also brings a second opinion, which he claims is the simple meaning of the text. It might refer to any gold and silver or any contribution someone may make to God, in addition to the regular sacrifices that someone could bring. We continue now in verse 6. That is referring to when one makes a pledge to God to bring a certain animal. And the rabbis have a distinction between these two words. And neder is when someone says, it's my responsibility to bring a certain sacrifice to God. He takes upon himself the responsibility. But they call a chiyuv on a gavra. The obligation is on the person. It can be any category of the voluntary sacrifices. V'nit votechem is a pledge of a certain animal. When a person says, harezu, this animal, this specific animal is going to be to God. And that's what is referred to as an obligation on the chefza, on the object. And finally, uvechorot bekarchem v'tzonachem, and the firstborn of your cattle and sheep. That specific law of bringing your firstborn to God, we will see later on in the end of chapter 15 in Parshad Re'eh. Now, verse 7 in Pasek Zayin, we continue with another application. These animals and sacrifices that are brought to the central place, they must also be eaten in that central place. And therefore, you have to eat them there in front of Hashem, your God. There you must rejoice with all your undertakings, you together with your household. Just as Hashem, your God, is blessing you, you shall be happy in front of Him. This specific commandment, to be happy in front of God, we will see also detailed in chapter 16, when we find the laws of the Shalosh Regalim, of the three pilgrimage holidays, there in regard to Shavuot and Sukkot, we will find the specific command of rejoicing in front of God when you bring your sacrifices. In verse 8 now, we begin a different topic, which is a bit complicated. Pasuket. Do not do like what we are all doing now here today, each person as he pleases. Before we study the different opinions in regard to what this verse is talking about, we must read the next verse because you can't understand verse 8 without understanding verse 9. Because you have not yet come, to the resting place and the inheritance that Hashem, your God, is giving to you. Again, another verse, which is difficult to understand until we read the next verse. 
Pasuk Yud, verse 10, You shall pass and cross the Jordan River. And you will settle down in the land that Hashem your God is allotting to you. And then Hashem will give you rest from all your enemies around and you will live securely in the land. Then, Pasuk Aleph, verse 11, Then that place that Hashem your God will choose for His name to dwell there, there you shall bring all the things that I'm commanding you, everything we talked about in verse 6, and now we review that list again. There you will bring your olot, your burnt offerings, and your zavachim, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, your masrot, and your trumot, and your contributions and all the voluntary offerings that you had pledged to God. So let's go back now to verse 8 and try to understand what's happening. Based on verse 10, almost all the commentators agree that this one central place of worship is not going to be constructed immediately upon entering the land, but rather only after its conquest and settlement. How long this will take will depend on Jewish history, but for sure it won't happen right away. The question is, what do we do until that happens? Well, in the meantime, we have a Mishkan, the same Mishkan, the same tabernacle that's been with us in the desert. We're going to see that that portable tabernacle was with the nation in Gilgal for the first 14 years or so. And then we moved to Shiloh, which was a semi-permanent tabernacle, but it still had a portable cover, even though the walls were made out of stone. But only some 400 years later, with the initiative of King David and the final construction by King Solomon, by Shlom HaMelech, the permanent temple will finally be built. So with that in mind, what is verse 8 talking about? Some commentators say, until there's a permanent temple, it was permitted to bring sacrifices in what's called a bama, a high place, which is an altar for God, but not the one central place. And therefore, there were certain time periods where a person could bring a sacrifice pretty much anywhere he wanted on what's called a bama. And there was the time before the temple was built that bamot were permitted, what the rabbis called heter bamot. That's more or less the approach of Rashi, and Rashi makes a distinction between the situation when entering the land before we built Shiloh, and then the situation after Shiloh was destroyed, before the temple in Jerusalem was built, when the Mishkan was temporarily in the cities of Nov and Givon, and the Aron was located in Kirat Yarim. Ramban suggests something very different. He claims that the obligation to bring sacrifices did not begin until we entered the land, and in the desert, even though we could bring a sacrifice, there were no obligations to bring sacrifices. And therefore, the only thing that people would bring to God would be contributions, anything they wanted, but there was no obligation. And that is what he refers to as Ish HaYashar Beinav, anyone bringing what he would like, as opposed to something that you're obligated to do. But all this raises a much larger question. Why is there a need to wait until the land is conquered and settled? Why can't it be built as soon as possible? The answer to that we find in the book of Shmuel, when King David is the first leader who asks from God permission to build a house for God. Recall that when David becomes king, the first thing he does is he captures the city of Yerushalayim. Then he brings the Aron to Yerushalayim. That's in chapters 5 and 6 in Shmobed. Then in chapter 7, we will find the opening verse, which relates specifically to what we just read now in Parshat Re. There we're told, in chapter 7, verse 1 in Shmobed, Vayichi yashav ha-melech when the king was sitting in his palace in his home, 
Vadunai heniach lo misavid mikol oivav, and Hashem gave him rest from all his enemies around. Recall David conquered almost all the land of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. He had peace from all his enemies around towards the middle of his kingdom. And he thought it was time now to build a temple because he reached Menuchah v'Nachalah. And that's why the Navi introduces his request with the exact same words as we find here in Sefer Tzvarim. In verse 2 it says there in Pasuk Bet, V'yomer ha-melech al-Natan navi The king said to Natan the prophet, Re'ena onuchi yoshe be-beit arazim, ba'aron ha-Elohim yoshe betoch It doesn't make sense, he tells the prophet. I'm living in a palace and God's ark, the ark of the covenant, is in a tent. Which means it doesn't make sense that I'm in a permanent palace doing well, and the Aron that represents our connection to God is in a portable tent. The prophet Natan tells the king, Do what you think is right because God is with you. Because Natan also studied Sefer Devarim and thought like David, it's time now to build a permanent temple. But surprisingly, God's answer to Natan the prophet that night was to tell David, not yet. We did not reach yet the level of security and quiet that's necessary to build this permanent temple. It's very nice you want to build a house for God, but you have to wait one more generation. You have to have a son, and only he can build a temple for God. The detailed explanation of God's answer we find in the book of Divrei Hayamim Aleph, chapter 22, in Perachabet in 1 Chronicles, where David tells his son Shlomo why he wanted to build a house for God and why God told him no, but his son yes. There, in chapter 22, David said to his son Shlomo, You're young, David explains to Shlomo, his son, who is still young, a teenager, he tells him that I wanted to build a house to glorify the name of God. Note again the word shame, God's reputation, as we find over and over again in Sefer Tvarim. And David tells Shlomo, I have everything ready for you to build it, and now he has to explain to his son why he can't. In verse 7, Vayimr David Shlomo. I had the intention in my heart to build a house for the name and reputation of Hashem my God. What did God tell me? You were a man of war, but you fought important wars. You can't build a house for my name because you're living in a time period of war and a temple can only be built during a time period of peace. David had thought that he had reached a time period of peace and God told him, you're almost there, but not yet. Therefore, he continues, You're going to have a son. He will be a man of rest. He'll continue to have rest from all his enemies around. His name shall be Shlomo. Why should you call him Shlomo? Because what does he need to remember? I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his time period. Therefore, in verse 10, Hu by Lishmi, he can build a house for my name. And David gets everything ready so that immediately after his death, his son Shlomo can build this house for God. So the big question is, why this prerequisite for having peace from all of our enemies around, not only conquering the land and settling it, but also living in peace with our enemies around, why is that the prerequisite for building the central place to make God's name known? I think the answer is rather simple, because the temple has two functions. For the Jewish people, like the Mishkan, like the tabernacle, it's a reminder of our connection to God. It's a reminder of what happened at Mount Sinai, of our commitment to be God's people forever. That we have to keep the laws that are represented by the Aron 
in the ark at the center of the Mishkan. But also, it's also showing the other nations we're God's people. We can't go public with this idea that we're God's people until we're mature enough as a nation so that when nations come to visit and see us, they will see God in a respectful manner. If we are at war with our enemies, if the neighboring countries hate us because we're at war with them, or if our behavior is not respectful, when they come and see this house of God, it won't sanctify God. Only when we reach peace and quiet and we have good relations with our neighbors, then we're able to build a house that can fulfill the function of making God's name known and his reputation known to the nations around. That was David HaMelech's lifelong goal. Unfortunately, he was living in a time period of war. He was living in a time when wars were necessary because when he began his kingdom, there were still enemies like the Plishtim who were out to kill us and destroy us. Only towards the end of King David's rule did we achieve peace with all our enemies around. David thought it was already time to build his house for God. And God basically tells David, very good intentions, but not yet. You need to bring up one more generation. And then your son, if he's a man of peace, therefore call him Shlomo, he can build his house for God. This also fits very nicely with the underlying theme of Sefer Dvarim that Moshe Rabbeinu explained in chapter 4, that the hope is the other nations will see us keeping these laws and be inspired and come to learn about God through our behavior. That can only work when we have a positive relationship with the nations around us. It seems in Sefer Dvarim that God was hoping that we would reach this level quite soon. Unfortunately, it took several hundred years of Jewish history until we were able to achieve that goal, and therefore, until the permanent temple was built, to be several times where bamot, where high places are permitted. And that's what almost all the commentators understand that verse 8 is talking about, that there's a time when we can bring sacrifices wherever we want. But once we were able to build a permanent temple for God, then these high places are going to be forbidden. If you know the Book of Kings, you'll see that even though it was forbidden, almost throughout the entire time period of the first temple, Bamot, high places, were still rampant almost everywhere. And it wasn't until the time of the King Chizkiel that the high places were destroyed and God was only served in the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. So let's continue now with verse 12, Pasuk Yudbet. Usmachtem lifnei Adonai Eloichem, atem uvnechem uvnotechem, vavdechem vaamaotechem, and you shall rejoice in front of Hashem your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your servants and your maidservants. Vallevi asher b'sharichem, ki en lo chelek v'nachalaitchem. And also the Levi, who is living in your gates, in your hometown, because he doesn't have any portion in the land that you are inheriting. So the first half of this verse is almost a repeat of what we saw before, that there's a commandment to rejoice in front of God together with your family. But why mention the Levi in your midst? Some commentators say that it means you be happy in Yerushalayim when you go there with your family, but don't forget about the poor Levite who's back at home. I think there's another way of understanding this, is that when you go to Yerushalayim, make sure to bring the Levi with you. When you come to Yerushalayim and bring your sacrifices and bring your pledges and you bring your masrot and you have so much to eat, the Levite has nothing to bring because he doesn't own land and he doesn't have cattle. But bring him with you because he's your teacher, he's your educator. And therefore, when you go to Yerushalayim, don't forget about the Levite who's in your hometown. Bring him with you and share your rejoicing together with him. And that way, when you're rejoicing, there'll always be a Levi giving it to Torah and helping you keep the laws in the proper way. Next, we're going to find a warning against bringing sacrifices anywhere you want, which is the most logical fear because to go all the way to Yerushalayim every time you want to bring a sacrifice is very difficult. And therefore, we have to warn against it. 
Pasuk Gimel, verse 13. Hishamer lecha, pentale olotecha, v'chol makom asher tireh. Be very careful, lest you bring your burnt offerings anywhere you want. Pasuk Gedalad, verse 14. Instead, where do we bring them? Ki im ba makom asher yivchar Adonai bechat shvatecha. Sham tale olotecha, v'sham tase kol asher onochi mitzaveka. Only in the place that Hashem will choose from among one of your tribes, there you should go up and bring your burnt offerings. There you have to do everything that I'm commanding you. As opposed to bringing the sacrifices anywhere you want, in what we would call a bama or a high place, here we're staying only in this one central place. What happens if someone wants to eat meat, but he doesn't want to go to Yerushalayim? Therefore, in verse 15, Pasik Tetvav, Rak avat nafshecha tizbach v'chalta basar, if you want to eat meat in your local area, whenever you want, you may slaughter and eat meat. As much as Hashem your God has blessed you in your gates, referring to whatever prosperity you have with your cattle. Anyone who's impure or pure can eat this meat, just like you eat meat of a gazelle and a deer. As we continue our study of chapter 12, We'll see this law much more in detail, but let's continue now with the next two verses. When you're eating this meat, there'll be a danger you might eat the blood. And therefore, in verse 16, Pasek Tetzayin, Rak adam lo tochelu, ala aretz tishpechenu kamayim. But make sure not to take the blood. Instead, pour the blood out on the ground like water. Once God is allowing you to eat meat outside the temple, so in the temple you take the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. Once you're allowed to slaughter and eat meat, Outside the temple, what do you do with the blood? Chumash is worried that people might eat the blood. Therefore, God tells you, do not eat the blood. Pour it out like water. Let's continue now with verse 17. You cannot eat in your gates, in your local community, your tithing, your maser, from your grain, from your wine, and from your oil, nor from the firstborn of your sheep or your cattle. Nor from any of the animals of any pledge you might make, or any time you give making a dava of a specific animal, or any contribution you make, you cannot eat them in your local community. Instead, what must you do? Verse 18, Only in front of Hashem your God you can eat them. In the place that Hashem your God will choose, you, your son and your daughter, and your servant and maidservant, and the Levite in your midst, and you must rejoice in front of Hashem your God that everything you are sending with your hand and bringing to God. This verse proves my point that we are supposed to bring the lady with us because all these items are supposed to be eaten in Yerushalayim. And who comes with us? Our sons, our daughters, our servants and maidservants, the whole family, and the Levite, our local rabbi. And therefore, the rejoicing must be done together with everyone who you live with at home. You take the entire group with you to Yerushalayim and the Levite together with you, which is how we explained the last phrase of verse 12, not to forget the Levite in your midst, not to give him a handout back at home, but rather to bring him with you and join in your rejoicing in Yerushalayim. And now we have the same warning again in verse 19, be careful, lest you forget the Levite, 
all your days on the land. Instead, when you're rejoicing, bring him to Yerushalayim with you and don't neglect him. The next topic will be the source for kosher meat. Before we read verse 20, just a reminder of what we learned in Sefer Vayikra. According to Sefer Vayikra chapter 17, it seems like if anyone would ever want to eat meat, it had to be a sacrifice. That's a simple meaning of the verses there. If you want to eat meat, it has to be in the context of a korban shlamim, of a peace offering to God. Now, if that commandment from Sefer Vayikra was applicable in the land of Israel all the time, and if the only place you could bring a sacrifice to God once the temple was built would be in Yerushalayim, it would be very difficult for a person to keep to the stringency of only eating meat in Yerushalayim, especially people far away from Yerushalayim. Therefore, Sefer Tvarim is going to have a, sort of a way out. It will permit slaughtering an animal and eating it outside the framework of a sacrifice to God, and it will allow you to eat meat outside Yerushalayim, but on the condition that you do something to remember that this animal could have been a sacrifice. And we'll read about it now in verse 20. Pasachat verse 20. When Hashem your God will widen your borders as He spoke to you, and you will say to yourself, I want to eat meat, because your soul has a desire to eat meat. The Torah says, you can eat meat whenever you want. On what condition? Verse 21. Should the place that Hashem is going to choose for His name to dwell there, should that place be far away from you, then what can you do? Then you can slaughter from your cattle and from your sheep that Hashem is giving you as you are being commanded. Then you can eat it in your gates, in your city, whenever you want. But with what condition? Verse 22. You should eat it in the same manner that you eat a gazelle or a deer. Someone who is Tamei or Tahor can eat it together. Someone Tahor is someone who is in a state of ritual purity. There's a whole long set of rules about that, but basically, one has to go to the mikvah, has to immerse himself in water, and not touch anything that makes him Tamei, and that allows him to eat the meat of a korban. When you eat meat that's not a korban, you don't have to be Tahor. And the name for this meat is called Chulim. However, there is one prohibition, However, be strong not to eat the blood. Because the soul of the animal is in that blood. Do not eat the soul of the animal together with the meat. The commentators ask a question, why this word chazak? Rambad suggests there might have been an ancient custom of using the blood of an animal to see the future or do some type of seance or something. And the Bible is fighting that. Again, he brings proof from verses in Sefer Vayikra and also from the Rambam in Morin Nebuchim. Rashi goes in a bit of a different direction and says a commandment that's so easy, like blood, the Torah tells you be strong. Even more so, you have to be strong for more stringent commandments. Rashbam gives a much simpler answer. He says eating the blood is not the problem. The problem is draining all the blood out of the animal after you slaughter it. And since it's hard to make sure that all the blood is salted out and drained, Therefore, he says, be strong to make sure to drain all the blood before eating it. In verse 24, another commandment, Pasach Abdalad, Lo tishpechanu 
Don't eat it. Instead, pour it out on the ground like water. And finally, in verse 25, in regard to the blood, Lo tochleno, do not eat that blood. In order that it will be good for you and your children after you. When you do that, what is right in the eyes of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that not eating blood is considered what is doing right in the eyes of God? Or I think the simpler meaning is, in order that God can bless you when you do Yashar Ben Hashem, when you do that is right in the eyes of God, as Ramban explains, being a good, kind person, thinking all the time, what would God want me to do in any situation? As we discussed in chapter 6, verse 18 in Sefer Tvarim, in our Shir and Parsha Petchanan, if you live a life of living Hayashar Ben Hashem, then God will be able to bless you on the condition that you don't need blood. And one final warning in Pasach Havav, verse 26, But your Kodashim, that is the animals that you've dedicated to God, and your pledges that you have to bring to God, lift them up and bring them to to that one central place of worship, and don't eat them at home, even though you can eat regular meat at home, you can't eat Kodashim at home. Pasach Havzayin, verse 27, Bring your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, on the altar of Hashem your God, in that one central place of worship. The blood of the sacrifice is to be spilled on the altar of Hashem your God, and then you can eat the meat. When you eat the meat outside the temple, then you pour the blood on the ground. When you bring a sacrifice to God, then the blood is spilled onto the altar, and then you can eat the meat. And now we summarize, Pasach Havchet, verse 28. Shomor v'shamat et kol Make sure to keep and heed all of these commandments. Asher nochim et that I'm commanding you. L'manitav l'cha u'levanecha acharecha ad olam, in order that Hashem will be good to you and to your children after you forever. Ki taseh ha-tov v'yashar When you do that which is good and upright in the eyes of Hashem your God, make sure to follow all of his laws so that he can bless you. And based on verse 28, and therefore our explanation of verse 25 is based on the summary in verse 28, which here clearly seems to imply, keep all the dvarim that I'm going to teach you in the laws of Sefer Dvarim, in this Chukim and Mishpatim section, about what to do with your wealth and prosperity, in order that God will bless you, when you do HaTov Yashar B'nei Hashem. This concludes the section of the opening laws about the one central place of worship, the next topic will be about bad influences in the land. We'll continue with that study in the Shiro tomorrow.